And if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and we will begin in chapter 1 and read from verse 1 down to verse 7. This is the Word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder, have you ever found yourself scratching your head trying to figure out why someone was so passionate about something, right? Uh, For those of you who don't play golf, golf is probably one of those things. You wonder, why would anyone waste and ruin a good walk around a manicured meadow hitting a ball from whence to wither? You know, it's like it's that game that I think was designed by a, a Glaswegian psychopath. Um, you know, getting a little ball in a rabbit hole, and uh, and it sounds a little bit like pool, I suppose, or snooker. But the hole they put it hundreds of yards away, and they put all this stuff in between trees and bushes and everything. And then there's this beautiful green that looks so flat, but it's not. And there's a flag in the middle of it to give you hope, but the ball will never get there. And, and they surround the green with water and sand traps and everything else. And you get on the green, and it's all wavy, and the ball goes everywhere but in the hole. And then you write down your score, which you call a stroke, because you feel like you're going to die every time you do. And you don't just do this once or twice or three times. Eighteen times you do this in, a, in, a, in an afternoon and you scratch your head. Now, for me, as I've said before here, and I have to come with some repentance this morning, um, I used to struggle to understand the American love of baseball, but I now understand it. One of you, to to aid my repentance, actually invited me to a local game. I'd been before to see the Savannah Bananas, and it wasn't very good, but the Greensboro Grasshoppers, amazing, took me there, and we had this amazing evening. It began with an ice-cold beverage, and a hot dog covered in jalapeno. Everything's better with jalapeno peppers. Amazing. Never thought of putting jalapenos in a hot dog. Amazing. And sat at the back like Mortimer and Stadler from the Muppets, talking about anyone and anything. It's a great place to watch human beings do the things human beings do as they walk about the stadium. And then the game started, and we talked about baseball. And it was really interesting. It really amazed me how they threw the ball so fast and so flat. It's incredible and how the guys hit the bat, hit the ball with this thin bat that's round is an amazing accomplishment. And then what amazed me, maybe most of all, is watching the men run around the, 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 the pitch at great speed, some of whom seemed much more skilled at running to and from the dinner table than they were running quickly from base to base. You'd think they'd actually practice running as fast as you can from base to base. It's kind of an important skill. But it was amazing. I had a fantastic evening. And uh, even though we lost, but it was a fantastic evening nonetheless. And so now, baseball lovers, please forgive me. I completely understand your mad devotion to the sport. Those of you who love cats haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> but please don't, don't invite me over to pet your pat, cat for two or three hours. But maybe I'll eventually be enlightened. Will we read Paul here right in... Uh, Philippians, and we are confronted from the get-go with his amazing love for the church. And I wonder, do you find yourself struggling to understand it? He is, he loves these people passionately. Listen to his words again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, 
making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He prays for these people nostalgically. He remembers them. Not every so often, like you may remember your time in high school or at college, and you remember it maybe three or four times a year, maybe more often, but not every day, right? But you get the impression that these people are on his mind constantly. And as, he, as, their, as their memory, as their names comes up to mind in his prayers, his mind bursts into gratitude and thanksgiving like fireworks exploding in the sky above a royal wedding. He loves these people. And he prays for them constantly and completely. These are no occasional reminiscences. They're always on his mind. Listen to how often he uses the word all. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, there's the word all times, in every, all my prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And then later on down, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Nostalgically, completely, constantly, Paul is praying for these people joyfully. It's an incredible prayer. He holds them not just in his lips, but in his heart. Now, what was it that commanded such an affectionate esteem for these people. And not just these people, but every church. You remember how he writes to the Corinthians? And as was often the case, Paul was being embattled by these super apostles who were kind of like Joel Osteen with probably bigger muscles, like crossing Joel Osteen and Arnold Schwarzenegger, living their best life now, tanned, curly hair, white teeth. Shouldn't have teeth that white as a pastor no blood vessels in the eyes, perfectly white eyes, and uh, just this big smile. And Paul writes to kind of, you know, combat to these guys. And they always pointed Paul out. He was like knock-kneed, um, squinty-eyed, and of diminutive stature, right? And so Paul writes and says, comparing himself to them, he had far greater labors, far more imprisonments. I mean, they were saying, look at us. Our lives are effortless. We've got wealth and blessed by God. Everything's wonderful. And Paul says, I have far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from river, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at all. You can see the public houses queuing up outside Paul's tent, wanting to sign him up for volume two of your best life now, right? Um, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Remember hearing Ted Donnelly comment on that, that the Roman army had a prize for the first guy when they were taking a city. The first guy up the ladder over the wall got a prize. He often didn't live to receive it, of course, which is why they gave him the prize. But the first guy up the wall got the prize. And Paul goes, I was the first guy down the wall in a basket. He's kind of mocking himself, but really mocking these best life now super apostles. But you wonder, what was it that drove Paul to such lengths serving the church? Why would he do that to himself, right? And there are three reasons. First of all, he and they, the Philippians, they all enjoyed a shared experience or a shared partnership of the gospel. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because 
of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, some of you might have in your translations the word fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. Now, we think of fellowship as a group of people in the fellowship hall with barbecue. Not doing barbecue is not a verb, of course, it's a noun, but enjoying barbecue and talking, chin-wagging together, good fellowship, right? Now, that's part of it, but it's much more than that. The word fellowship in the Greek carries the idea, actually, of a business partnership, right? Like um, Peter, James, and John investing significant capital, buying a fishing boat, and then spending and being spent early in the morning, late at night, out fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And it mattered to them. It was a business, and their family's welfare rose and fell with the success of the boat, as it were. Well, Paul loves these people because of their fellowship, literally in the Greek, into the gospel, because of your partnership. We are partners not in a business, not in a social club, but we are partners in the great business of the gospel, Paul says. That begs the question, doesn't it? What is the gospel, and how are we partners in it? Well, the term gospel is the Greek word euangelio, from which we get evangelical. And um, it, 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 it actually was used quite commonly. It wasn't a word that Paul invented. It was used commonly in the ancient Near East to describe the birth of a great king. So, when Caesar Augustus was born, the message of the gospel of his birth went out because people believed and hoped he would make a great difference to the world. It was a gospel message. Or whenever a great victory was won, like the Greeks at Marathon, right, they would send out the gospel message across the land to let them know, we have done it. We've won. Peace has been made. You can imagine that in Ukraine if the Ukrainian forces managed to beat Putin out of their country in a decisive victory that there'd be great joy and gladness and dancing in the land, and the, the word the Greeks would use would be gospel. Now, the New Testament writers borrowed that term to describe the greatest and most central event of human history, which was the coming of God the Son in our nature, wrapped up in our flesh, in the stable at Bethlehem. And they used the word also to describe what Christ did in His life and what he achieved by his death. So, what is the gospel? Maybe you're in the bus or the train, and you're going to the next stop. And at least, well, that's maybe a bad illustration because Amtrak's go for long distances without a stop. But in the UK, you get on the train in the morning, you go to work, and there's like a stop every minute or 30 seconds. You're kind of always getting off. And so you've only got a few minutes maybe to tell somebody, say, what's the gospel? What would you say? You've got two minutes in a, in, a, in a hotel lift. What are you going to tell them? What is the gospel? Well, you might say the gospel is the word we use to describe the significance of… It's all about Jesus. If you think of the Christian religion, the way into the Christian religion is through the door, and the door is Jesus. He is the way in. He is the foundation. He is the sum and substance. It's all about Jesus and what He did and why He came. And Jesus came into this world, and He lived the life we ought to have lived for our justification, for our righteousness, for our forgiveness before God. And He died the death we ought to have died because of our condemnation before God, because we were condemned and we all deserve to die. That's the gospel. And His resurrection declares from God that what He did was enough to fix the three great problems that every human being have, from pulpit to pew, from throne to the lowest commoner's house in Battersea-on-Sea in England. Wherever you live in this world, um, every human being has got three terrible problems. We do terrible things. We live terrible lives. We are terrible people, and we face a terrible future. And Christ, God's Son, is the answer to those three problems. That's the gospel. 
And what are those three? How, how, do, I, how, how do I unpack those things? Well, let's take the first two together. They go together. We live terrible lives because we are terrible people. What I mean there, of course, is sin. Now, it's very important you understand this. We, we sin because we're sinners. Most people don't think that. Most people think they are sinners because they sin. We tend to think of sin as something we do. The Bible thinks of sin as something that we are. So, perhaps you have a spouse. We'll not mention the gender for fear of sounding sexist, but you might have a spouse who is very gifted at driving the car wherever they sit in it. It doesn't matter whether they sit in the left-hand side of the car or the right-hand side of the car, whether they sit in the front of the car or in the back of the car. They can't help themselves but help you drive the car. You're going too fast. The speed limit here is 30 miles. It's 30 miles an hour. Don't you know? This is your exit. Indicate now, quickly. You're drifting lanes. Back, back again, back again. And, and so it goes on, right? And eventually, though, you get to where you're going, and you, you might find this behavior slightly irritating. Because you think to yourself, I'm a pretty good driver, and I actually got you where we went, meant to go. We didn't crash, and despite what you might like to say, I didn't almost kill you along the way, right? And people tend to think of sin like that. We're driving along the road, we're doing pretty well, and then God says, stop grumbling, stop lusting after your neighbor's wife, stop lying, stop cheating, stop watching too much television, stop texting when you're driving, stop, you know, whatever, and the list goes on, and we think of, but we're actually going in the right direction, and we are doing fundamentally the right thing, but we just occasionally mess it up, or quite often, but still, sin is something that we do. That's not sin, Right? Sin is like the old man who stole the keys to the car because the parents took his, his kids took the keys off his car because he was confused like me earlier in the service, and they took the key and he found the keys. He's driving the car and his daughter hears about him and she calls him and says she, she sees him on you know I forty driving, and she calls him and says Dad you're in the car you got to be and as she's calling him she sees on the news there's a driver going the wrong way down I forty. And she goes, be very careful, Dad. There's a car going the wrong way on I-40. And he goes, no, it's much worse than that. There's hundreds of them, right? <laughs> and of course, boys and girls, he's the one going the wrong way. He's going east. It's actually the N25, but still, I-40 is easier to understand for you Americans. Um, he's east. He's going eastbound on the westbound side of the interstate. Right? Now, back to my illustration. The driver, not him, he was old, but he might be texting and driving, right? Looking at the news, or worse, when he's texting. He might have the music up too loud on the, on the, on the, on the radio listening to some godforsaken music, right? He, he might be speeding. He might be drifting from lane to lane, and all that's well and good. But it's worse, worse than that. The whole car, every atom of the car, every cell in his body is going the wrong way down the road, that's sin. We do terrible things. We are terrible people. Every fiber of our being is moving away from God and towards self. And when the Bible says repent, it's not saying just stop doing this or that particular sin. It's saying turn the whole thing around and turn back to God. We are terrible people doing terrible things, and we face a terrible future when God sees us doing that, going the wrong way with every fiber of our being, God thinks something and He feels something. And that something God feels is anger. And He's right. He's good and angry. And He should be. Illustration. This week, actually, I'm driving west on Benjamin Boulevard or the brand, the Benjamin Park, whatever that, that road just after the Green Valley. And I'm coming up to the Holden exit going west. And there's like six cars, and we're all kind of catacornered like this on the road, right, one another. And I'm on the outside lane overtaking the one to my right, and I'm just getting level with his bumper. And this guy comes up in this beat-up old Toyota. And uh, he races up behind me. He's going about 40 miles an hour faster than I am, and I'm driving at the speed limit. Maybe just a little bit more, but speed limit. And he's coming behind me, 
and he brakes to stop crashing into my bumper, for sure. I'm thankful. He swerves, almost hits the back of my car into the inside lane, overtakes me on the, I had nowhere to go because there's a car in front of me, tries to overtake me, but there's a car just here, so he can't actually get past me and into him. He's right up on this guy's bumper. He's got nowhere to go. And then the guy pulls onto the hard shoulder, overtakes the guy on the inside on the hard shoulder, swerves, almost hits him, swerves back again onto the parkway, and then is stuck behind another car, and he's right up on him and beeping and flashing his lights. And when I saw that, I thought something, and I felt something. I thought, I wish, I wish just once I could be a police officer <laughs> and pull him over and arrest him and uh, give him a ticket. Oh, I'd love it. And then I also felt angry because he's totally living in complete disregard to the rules of the land, right? And then I had another thought when God said to me, not in a voice, but I had the thought, which was, how do you think I feel, Neil, when you live in complete disregard of my law? And I went, oh, that's not good. Um, and that's it. And God feels angry. He's right to be. When people flagrantly disregard His law, abuse one another terribly, people made in His image, Think the way no God-bearing image-bearer, sorry, no image-bearer should ever think. Speak the way no image-bearer should ever sound. And look th- and do the things no image-bearer should ever do. And that's not just a problem out there in the world. I mean, just look at the news. It's obvious our country is falling apart. But that's a problem, as Solzhenitsyn said, the line of evil runs through every human heart. Our hearts, with every fiber of our being, were turned away from God and were turned toward ourselves, and it infuriates the Most High God of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ is the only answer to that problem. You might say, that sounds a bit stiff. That's the Bible's assessment. Romans 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. I'm not good. You're not good. The Archbishop of Canterbury who buried Her Majesty, Her Late Majesty, the Queen of England, Elizabeth, he's not good. The Pope is not good. The Cardinals of Rome aren't good. The bishops aren't good. None of us are good. There is none righteous, no, not one. And you think, well, prove it to me. And Paul says, all I would need is a dictaphone. There is none, sorry, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Just the way you and I speak is a revelation of our heart, because our mouth is the exhaust pipe of our heart. And as Paul says, destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. And God is furious with us. And we often think, well, Doesn't God, though, hate the sin, love the sinner? No, that's a half-truth at best. The Bible actually says God hates all who practice iniquity. It's Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Iniquity is the word for the hidden crookedness of the heart. And all who bring that on the inside out into the outside, God says He hates them. That's the way He ought to feel anyway. Now, there's a depth in the heart of God to love sinners despite their sin, and at very great cost to Himself, He loves us at the cost of His own Son. But He ought to hate us. It's His natural default reaction. The wrath of God, I think what John thought said, is God's principled, uncompromising refusal to tolerate sin in any form and to react against it with all of His being. That means He doesn't just hate the lies 
politicians tell on television. He hates the lies you tell to your wife and your wife tells to you. He doesn't just hate the, the, the um, politician jumping in bed with his secretary. He hates you looking at pornography and movies and so, so forth. Or on the beach when you look at a woman walking by or a man walking by and thoughts of lust want to enter your mind and you have to hold them back. Even that impulse is as offensive to God as a pedophile feeling naturally inclined to lust after a child. It's, it's out of place. It should never be in a man's mind. Well, lusting after a man or a woman should never be in a man's mind or a woman's mind either. It's out of place. It's, it's, a, it's a horrid eruption of wickedness. And the only answer to this unmitigated, unmixed, unadulterated fury of God is the gospel. And Paul loved these people because they're partners in the gospel, right? But it's the gospel, this message of Christ. As Paul puts it, remember in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. Sorry, is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what's Paul saying? Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Paul says, because it is the only place under heaven and above hell where the power of God is available to save me. The righteousness of God is legally allowed to forgive me, and where the wrath of God can't get its hands on me and lay hold of me. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel does that when Jesus comes and joins Himself to us and lives the life we ought to have lived and died the death we ought to have died, a perfect life and an awful death, and was raised again on the third day as God's demonstration and declaration that what He did was enough to fix and to finish forever your sin and mine. So that you could look at Jesus and say, His life is my life, and His death is my death, and His heaven is my heaven now, only because of Jesus. That's the gospel. And for Paul, that is the, the message of all messages. And he believes, and it says, you are partners with me into the gospel. It's, it's not something they just believe in or get engaged in. It's something they've believed into. It's a reality that surrounds them, like the, the fish of a sea surrounds the fish in the ocean. And these people are gospel people, and Paul is a gospel man, and they share this experience of the gospel, and it, it turns everything upside down, inside out, and back to front, which is the right way up. And he shares this experience. Do you know that? Do, do you know what that means? To share, to be here, not just because you like the songs or because you like hearing a pastor with an accent. It makes him sound intelligent, you know. Um, but, but are you here because this is a gospel place? And we're gospel people. And the great business of our life is not in the stock market, in Wall Street or in Main Street, but the great business of our life is in every street under heaven where the gospel is needed and where the gospel must go forth and we live and we die to see the gospel conquer the earth as far as the sun shines. That's what grabbed Paul's heart. That's why he loved these people. Their shared experience or partnership in the gospel. The second thing that grip Paul about these people, is they both shared the same experience of God. Verse 6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How did these people come to be Christians? Was it something they did? Did they hear the gospel and then they kicked everything off by believing? 
No. They are Christians because, not because they did something, not even because Paul said something, but they are Christians because God Himself did something. And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you, the goodness didn't begin until God began it. The sovereign, the, the word the Bible uses for that is the new birth. It's a life from above where the resurrection power of Easter morning touches down in our hearts like two defibrillation paddle tablet paddles for the soul, and God zapped us into new life, which is why Paul is always thanking God for the faith of the church. It's the implication here. He thanks God for these people's partnership in the gospel. He doesn't thank them for it. In Ephesus, he says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you all, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks to God. He thanks God for their faith, and he thanks God for their love. You see the same pattern in Colossians and Thessalonians, all over the place. And here, why does Paul thank God for these people's faith? Because these people believe because God began a good work in them. It was God who brought them to faith. He says to the Ephesians, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation doesn't begin with man. It begins with God. Of the way our Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it, we, we use the word effectual calling, which means when God, you know, if you're driving down the road and there's people walking and you go, Oi! They all might turn around. But if you say, Jimmy! Only Jimmy turns around. And in the gospel, when the gospel is preached, there's a general call that goes out to all men as far as the sun shines. But in that call and with that call, there's a specific call, like, Lazarus, come forth. Mary, come forth. Rick, come forth. Chris, come forth. April, come forth. There's a, a, a voice goes forth. Sammy, come forth. And that voice awakens in the heart of a person's life. Effectual calling. And our catechism is effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit. It's not your work. It's not my work. It's God's work. The work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our mind in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to the gospel. God convinces, not us. God enlightens, not us. God renews the mind, not us. God persuades and enables. He drives the hatred out. And He brings His love in and lays hold of our heart and pulls us out of darkness into light, out of death into life. Has that happened to you? You can be very religious. Nicodemus was one of the most religious men in the land when Christ was on earth. And Christ said to him, Nicodemus, you lack one thing. Unless a man is born again, unless you are born again, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. From beginning to end, salvation is God's work. I love the way Packer sums it up in his wonderful little book, or little essay on the death of death and the death of Christ by John Owen. And in his introductory essay, Packer sums up the whole Bible. What's the Bible? Somebody asks you, what does the Bible mean? On the bus, 30 seconds, what do you say? Three words. God saves sinners. That's the Bible. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, and the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and the Son by renewing. God saves sinners. He saves them. 
does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing a man from death and sin to life and glory. He plans, achieves, communicates redemption, calls, and he keeps. He justifies and he sanctifies, and in the end, he glorifies sinners. God saves sinners. Men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual state, sinners. God save sinners. It's a message of the Bible. And Paul here says, and he's so excited because these people share in his in partnership with the gospel with him, but they also share in their experience of a God who saves sinners. God began that work, and Paul says, he will surely complete it. What Top Lady said, I love this hymn, the work which his goodness began the arm of His strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, not all things below nor above can make Him His purpose forego or sever my soul from His love. The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. I am sure he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's wonderful. Once you're in Christ, we say in Britain, you're as safe as houses. You're even more safe than that. Nothing can separate you from Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing you do. Nothing that can be done to you or by you can separate you from God's love. He began the good work. And He will keep you kept. He will hold you through thick and through thin, and He will bring you home in the end. That's what Paul said, or Peter said to the church in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten you, caused you to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, not your own power, by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. We are believing, but we're kept by a greater power like a little child walking down the road. It's a busy road, and Daddy's holding the child's hand. Daddy, what, what comfort is there if it's just a child holding your hand? They're as mad as a yard bird. They'd let, they'd let go of the hand in a moment and run out into the road to get a ball bouncing that they dropped. But it's not that they're holding your hand that comforts you. It's the fact that you're holding their hand, and you will not let that tiny fist out of, out of your grip. Now, for a moment... God began the work, and God will complete the work. And so, Christian, whatever you're facing this morning, whatever dark shadows are on the horizon of your contemplation, whatever threats you face from your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, Jesus said, your son, your daughter even, Jesus, Paul said, when my mother and father forget me and forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Whatever you face, whatever danger, whatever fears, whatever anxiety, if you're trusting in Jesus, God has got you, and He will never let you go. And that excites Paul's heart for these people. He loves them. And then, lastly, they don't just enjoy a common partnership in the gospel and a common experience of God, but they also enjoy a common mission in the world. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you. All, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, what's that mean? That's, that's difficult, right? How, does, how do they share in the grace of God, both in Paul's imprisonment and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel? Let's see if I can explain that. Sometimes, well, last week I was at the wedding, Connie and Clark's wedding, and I sat at table at one of the, the, the meals we enjoyed with a dear lady who was um, 
very um, glad to be there. We're talking, and um, just wonderful chat. But she, she knew I wasn't from, from these parts because there's the only person there with no accent whatsoever. And so she said to me, I'm really sorry, you know, you're coming across to America with all this craziness going on in our politics. And I, I kind of got the impression she was thinking about conservative craziness. And I'm probably more conservative than liberal in, my, in politics. And, and so she's kind of like, I didn't tell her that, though. We got to Christ through the thick and through thin. But she kind of was apologizing. And, and you know, I kind of thought, hmm, she doesn't know I'm much more conservative than she realizes. And maybe, maybe, for example, let's say, for example, and this is not a political statement, just an illustration, maybe you voted for Donald Trump in the last election, right? And um, maybe there'd be some crowds, though, you might be a little bit reticent to um, say that. Like if you're at UNCG or even Chapel Hill, and the professor were to say, who voted for Donald Trump in the last election? You're not going to go. <laughs> you feel like Wiley Coyote with the big boulder coming down, holding the little parasol and the sign saying, help. And then, <laughs> not a good thing to do, right? You'd be a bit embarrassed. Well, Paul was despised by the Romans and the Jews pretty much the way many people in society today despise Donald Trump, Right? And he was despised, not comparing Paul to Trump. Just bear with me. I'm just saying he was despised, right? And um, there you have it. He was despised. And so lots of people who were Paul's friends when he was free suddenly stopped becoming Paul's friends when he was imprisoned. Like he said, you remember in 2 Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Everybody else was ashamed of my chains. Paul's, Paul would call his friends, and he'd go, ring, 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 I'm sorry, you've reached a cell phone, or blah, 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 blah. and this, does, this, this, this phone does not receive incoming calls. Thank you very much. Please don't leave a message. You're wasting your time. Bye-bye. And Paul was like, oh, but Anesiphorus picked up. Anesiphorus came to Paul in prison, even though the jailers and the prisoners would mock him as he walked to Paul's cell and despise him. But Anesiphorus wasn't ashamed because he believed what Paul believed, and they were partners in the gospel, and Onesiphorus came. And the people of Philippi were like that with Paul. In chapter 4, Paul says, you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Nobody else helped me, but you helped me. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They just met Paul. He just planted the church, was left town, and went to Thessalonica where he was rejected. And even then, from the first day until now, Paul says, you've been partners with me in the gospel. And so what Paul is saying here is, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What he's saying is, when I was imprisoned, and, 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 and I was defending the gospel and, and speaking for it and confirming the gospel through my witness, right, I was receiving grace, Paul says. It was grace that enabled me. God's undeserved favor enabled me to, to endure all that hardship for the gospel, but he said, it wasn't just me. You also, as you weren't ashamed of me, as you stood with me through thick and through thin, as you prayed for me and you gave of to me, even though you were poor and didn't have much money yourself, but you, you, you supplied my need. You sent your own pastor to, to, to come to me with a, a satchel of food and cookies and so forth in prison to meet me, even though he could have been arrested himself and thrown into prison for coming near me. You were not ashamed of me, and that took grace, grace for me to stand with Christ through thick and through thin, and grace for you to stand with Christ through thick and through thin. And so, as I love the way 
Um, Peterson sums up that verse. It's not at all fanciful for me to think this way about you. My prayers and hopes have, have deep roots in reality. You have, after all, stuck with me all the way from the time I was thrown in jail, put on trial, and came out of it in one piece. All along you have experienced with me the most generous help from God. He knows how much I love and miss you these days. That's what Paul is saying. They're not just gospel partners in the best times. They're gospel partners in the worst of times. That's the way Paul felt about them, and that's the way they felt about Paul, and they were in it. Now, days will come, my brothers and sisters, when I think you and I will be tested about how much we really love the gospel. John Bunyan was in prison because he opposed the king and the king's right to impose certain aspects of a Roman Catholic light service upon the church. He was a nonconformist. And all it would have taken to get out of prison was he just bow the knee and use the prayer book. And his blind daughter would come to him in prison. And she loved her daddy and she missed him. But John Bunyan's conscience was captive to the Word of God, the gospel, and worship. And he couldn't compromise cost him. And that may happen to you. It'll not be whether or not you stand for a certain political candidate. It's whether or not you're willing to stand for Jesus Christ, whether or not really the gospel commands your energies, whether or not you only come here because it's a popular place to come, at least at the moment, and we sing, you know, the old hymns, and we have the gospel message, and so forth and so on, and there are friends here. But is there anything deeper behind your commitment here? Are you driven by a, a deep sense of our partnership together in the gospel. You think of people's partnership, maybe in their alma mater, and they, they, they meet another Clemson fan or a UConn fan, commiserating after yesterday's game or whatever, and, and you, you, you're together and the fact that you support Clemson or Alabama or War Eagle or some other place, that binds you together. Or maybe even something more. Maybe you fought in Normandy or a Marine, Semper Fi, and there's a brotherhood there, an esprit de corps there that binds you together forever. Once a Marine, always a Marine, right? And, and that binds you together. What does it say about you if the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't one of those things that binds you together? That, 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 that what lights your candle is not, is the stock market rising or falling, but much more than that is, is, is the gospel of Christ going well in this world? Is it going forward? Is it going forth to conquer and to subdue this world to the sweet knowledge of Christ in every place? And if that doesn't excite you, maybe it did in the past, maybe it doesn't any longer, I don't know. Remember, it never has. That doesn't excite you, the gospel. I can imagine that you might be a Christian, but I'm quite sure you aren't a very healthy one. Other things are capturing the attention of your soul and distracting you from the eternal reality of Jesus Christ and the glorious reality of who He is and what He did. Will Christ spend and be spent saving your soul from hell by enduring hell in your place? Will Christ justify you by being condemned? Will Christ serve you with His blood, sweat, and tears, and will you not serve Him? Will Christ make your good His highest end on earth for the glory of His Father? And you not make His glory and the good of His kingdom your highest end on earth to the glory of God the Father. Oh, Philippians, 
I thank God for preaching verse by verse. I'd never preach in these verses without having to <laughs> next week. They seem so inconsequential, but there's nothing actually more consequential in all the world than your relationship to the great message of the gospel. Can't you say, I was lost, but now I'm fine, found. I was blind, but now I see. Not because I wised up and looked up, but because he came down until there was no more down left to go to redeem me, a terrible person living a terrible life and facing a terrible eternity. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, Jesus is here and he knows you. He's calling out to you. He's not asking your permission. He's not saying, will you please invite me into your heart? The King of heaven doesn't need his inv- your invitation to come into your heart. He's coming. And my prayer is today, he's come for you. And he's saying, I have come to begin a good work in you. Darkness be gone. Death be gone. Life come. And suddenly you find yourself awake. And this irrespectable, irresistible sense of, I am a sinner. I need salvation. And you look to him and you say, save me. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I will keep you through time and through eternity. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every day. We thank you for Jesus. We do pray this morning, Lord, that he would begin a good work that it will take eternity to complete. When Christ returns, it shall be finished, and we shall then be brought into his presence forever. Do what only you can do, Lord Jesus, this morning. Save sinners, and keep the ones you have saved kept against that day, and continue to work with us through thick and through thin. Do not give up on us, though we often give up on you. In Christ, amen.